Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We're going to be looking at a big chunk in Titus chapter 3. Uh, if this is your first time at Awaken, we've been working our way through a series uh, in Titus with the, the tagline, the big idea of setting straight what is crooked. Uh, the thought there is that if, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, the church, our lives can become crooked. They can get out of order. Uh, it takes intentionality and care to maintain order. It comes from Titus 1 verse 5, where Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And now if we're going to set things straight, if we're going to set straight what's crooked, if we're going to have order, we have to have the right starting point. You have to have the correct foundation in order for things to go the right direction. A great example of this is the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I, I think we have a picture of it. Yep. Um, so this was built uh, between the 1100s and the 1300s. And that, that lower section there, you can see it's a little bit different than the rest of the tower. That was built first. And immediately after they finished building it, it began to lean. It began to tilt because they built it on marshy ground. It didn't have a good foundation. It couldn't support the building, so it immediately started to fall. And everything that came after that was done and had to be done to try to adjust for that lean, to try to correct because it was crooked. So some ends of the, the, the one end of the tower uh, is actually the walls are all built a little bit higher than the walls on the other end, trying to make up for them and pull, pull it back. Even to this day, uh, people are having to do repairs and keep up with it in order to keep it from toppling over, all because the starting point, the foundation, was crooked. And it's, it's the same for us also. We need a solid foundation. And that foundation is what we're going to be looking at today in Titus, chapter 3. Uh, the foundation is the gospel. It's the salvation message. Paul emphasizes in Titus that it's the main thing. There's what we need to insist on. In order to keep things from becoming crooked, in order to keep things in order, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And if I can say main thing one more time, it's the title of our message um, this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into to Scripture. Father, thank you so much that you are good, that you speak to us. I pray that you would give me the words to say, to clearly speak your word. I pray that you would give all of us the ears to hear what you are speaking, what you are doing, Lord, that we would be able to understand your word, understand your truth this morning. Thank you for opportunities like this to come underneath your word as a, as a church. And I just pray that you would be honored and, and your spirit would be working change in life within us. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, Titus 3, verses 1 through 11. It's a big section. I'm going to read through all of it and, and talk a little bit, and then we'll, we'll look at the middle bit. So Paul says, Remind them, that's the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities 
to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That word uh, courtesy, it could also be translated humility, to show humility to all people. It's the same idea as Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, uh, treat others better than yourself, right? Um, All before this, uh, Paul's been giving ways and and expectations for how the church should interact primarily within the church, how we we are to treat the family where we uh, are with. And in these two verses, he gives a quick uh, idea of how we should be treating people outside the church, all kind of summed up in that last thought of, um, treat everyone with perfect courtesy or humility. And then he goes into verse 3, where he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. That, that phrase there, the saying is trustworthy, it, it appears a few times in, in the Timothy's, the letters to First and Second Timothy and Titus. And generally, when Paul says that, he's usually referencing some sort of um, pre-existing saying. Likely, this was a, a baptismal creed or a hymn of some sort that, that was already accepted within the church. So he says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, in contrast to the good things to insist on, he writes, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So Titus, chapter 3. Um, we're going to be working our way through the middle section. I want to really focus on, on verses 3 through 8 because I, I think Paul is emphasizing that uh, this gospel message of salvation is the, is the important piece. Right? He says to insist on this. That word insist can be also translated carefully, or confidently assert. He's telling Titus that he he needs to be able to confidently assert the gospel. And that's my goal for for all of us today, that we would be able to come out from this morning more confident in our understanding of what the, the salvation message is. And then if we have time at the end, we'll look at Uh, the first two verses in the end, and kind of see how uh, they are affected by the gospel message. But that central piece, that trustworthy saying, it's important. It is of utmost importance, because you never move past the gospel. It's never the gospel and. 
It is the story. It is the message of Christianity. It is everything. And if you don't have that right, everything else is going to be crooked. All of the rest of your interactions within the church, all of the rest of your relationship with God will be crooked on some level if you don't have the gospel. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. So we're going to work through uh, primarily verses 4 through, uh, four through 7, piece by piece, but you have to start in verse 3. If you don't have verse 3, none of the rest of this makes any sense. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is a description of the, the end state, the outworking of sin within our lives. Sin just means missing the mark. God has a kingdom. He is ruling and reigning, and he has given direction on how we are to live and how we are to relate to him. And instead of uh, walking in that, we all choose to go our own way. This is the gospel message. We all choose to go our own way. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, when they took the fruit, they were deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil. And we do that for ourselves, and we, we sin. We miss the mark that God has set, and it creates foolishness, disobedience. It leaves us as slaves hating and hating one another. Ultimately, we make ourselves the enemy of God. If you don't see yourself in verse 3, if you don't recognize your life at some point there, the gospel is not for you. Salvation isn't going to mean anything for you. Because in Luke 19.10, Jesus tells us that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is a picture of the lost, helpless, unable to, to find goodness, unable to do anything for themselves, slaves to passions and pleasures, lost in hatred. Don't get me wrong, we are all there. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you don't see that, if you don't recognize that, if you haven't been awakened to and convicted of sin, then the rest of the gospel makes no sense. It doesn't matter. It's not going to affect you. That is the starting point. Recognition, awareness of, I am an enemy of God, and I need salvation. What is that salvation? Paul, Paul lays it out starting in verse 4. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. I'm going to pause right there. It's kind of an awkward spot. But I want to go through section by section and just, just break this down slowly with you guys. Paul starts out by saying the goodness of God. He, he emphasizes God is good against the backdrop of our hatred, against the backdrop of our disobedience and foolishness. God is good. He has loving kindness. In the Greek, the the loving kindness is philanthropos. It's where we get the word philanthropy from. It means care for, love for humanity. God is the ultimate philanthropist. And we see in him 
the ultimate act of care for people in that he is our Savior. You see God all throughout Scripture working out this plan of salvation. It looks a little bit different for different people in different places and times, but it's the same plan and it's the same God bringing salvation. Isaiah 43, 11, God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. He is the only God. There is only one. And yet, this God exists as three separate and distinct persons. The Father, referenced here as God our Savior, the Son, who's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That's important because we see all three of those uh, persons within this gospel statement. You see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and, and they are all God. They are all the same God working salvation. And this God, He appeared. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. God showed up. There is a, a moment, a place in time where God appeared. Where he lived among us. He taught. He worked. He healed. He performed miracles. The goodness and loving kindness of God was expressed through Jesus. And it found its full expression at the cross where he died and then rose from the dead three days later. God appeared. He appeared on the scene amidst his enemies. Not to destroy them, not to condemn them or to conquer, but to save. He appeared with mercy and grace. And he saved not because of anything we had done. Paul, Paul makes that clear. He continues in, in uh, Titus 4, uh, 3, 4, uh, saying, or 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This salvation, the saving work of God, did not come because we had anything to do with it. All throughout this, this section, Paul is emphasizing that the action, the action of what is happening is all done by God. Righteousness means right standing with God. It's the, the state, the act, the characteristic of being in the right. And in this, it doesn't matter what good works we may think we have done. We're all made in the image of God. We can recognize good and evil. We can do some things that are, are seemingly good. But we do them as enemies of God. We do those good things in opposition to Him. So we have no right standing with Him. We have nothing that would allow us to come before Him because we are His enemies. Ephesians 2, 8-9, Paul puts it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have nothing to boast about. We were enemies of God, not righteous. This salvation came, continuing in Titus, according to God's own mercy. Mercy is the idea of kindness and compassion to somebody in need. God's compassionate love for his creation led him to act on their behalf. 
We do not deserve salvation. As enemies of God, living in sin, we deserve wrath. That is justice. God's kingdom sweeping away evil. But God shows mercy. John 3.36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As an enemy of God in your sin, the wrath of God is already on you. It's there. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to remain there. God had mercy. He stepped in. He made a way. And that salvation happens through, continuing on in Titus, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing there is, is an, likely an allusion to baptism. That's why this was, this was probably a baptismal creed. But Paul is not saying that uh, baptism is what saves you. He's just drawing, uh, he's drawing relation between what the Holy Spirit does and what we represent with baptism of being buried and, and raised to life with Christ. Uh, the idea there is that the filth of sin has been washed away by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity. He is God. In Jesus, John promises us that, or in John, Jesus promises us that he will send the helper when he ascends into heaven. It's the Holy Spirit. And that helper primarily exerts transforming power within our lives, renewing and regenerating us in Christ. It is the Spirit of God who serves as the marker of your salvation. You know you are saved, not because a pastor said so, or because you prayed some specific wording, or because you were baptized. You know you are saved because the presence of the Holy Spirit is at work within your life, changing and transforming who you are. You are no longer the same person you were before. The Spirit of God has made His dwelling place with you. You are saved. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation what we've been talking about right now, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. And he does a work of washing, of uh, regeneration and renewal. Those are essentially synonyms for each other. They both explain what this work of washing is. Uh, The word regeneration in particular, it means a complete change of life, a rebirth. It's the same idea as, as what Jesus talks to Nicodemus about, where he tells him that if you want to be saved, you have to be born again. We are all dead in our sin, separated from God. We need new birth. We need a new heart and a new spirit. This, this idea is the culmination of God's promise in Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. From all of your idols, I will cleanse you. You will be washed in the Spirit. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit makes us new. God gives us a new heart, new life. He promised this hundreds of years before Jesus through, the, through Ezekiel and has been working that out and promising it for long before then. And the Spirit is poured out on us. Paul continues, The Spirit of God, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Richly, abundantly, there is more than enough of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is not a scarce resource that only a few are allowed access to. There is more than enough of this unending source of life and power for all of us. And more than that, there is more than enough for you. No matter where you are, no matter how far into your sin you've gone, no matter how lost you feel you may be, There is abundantly more of the Spirit, abundantly more of salvation to meet you where you are at. It comes through Jesus. Note that he calls Jesus Christ our Savior. And a couple of verses back, God our Savior. He's drawing the connection between Jesus is God. He continues on so that being justified by His grace. Justified means being declared righteous. It's being acquitted, being pronounced or treated as though you are righteous. We could not do works of righteousness to save ourselves, but we have been given the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus took our sin, our separation, the punishment that we deserved on himself and gave us his righteousness, his place with God. All throughout um, Paul's writings, you'll just see him constantly say that we are in Christ, in Christ, over and over again. And that's the idea is that in Jesus' death and resurrection, we can participate in that with him and be in him and have righteousness, have right standing with God so that we can approach God so that we can come before Him. And all of that is a work of grace. Cheris is the Greek word for for grace that's used here. It's uh, something that one grants to another. The action of one who volunteers to do something uh, something not otherwise obligatory. It's kindness, acts of generosity grounded in compassion towards someone in need. For Paul, grace is the affirmation that all of salvation is God's initiative. It's his work. It's him who does it. In in God's mercy, he withholds his wrath, and in his grace, he gives us salvation. We are brought into the house of God. The parable of the lost sheep is a parable of grace. In his graciousness, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one that is lost 
that has no way back on its own. And he brings him back into the fold. And, and the same is true of us. God brings us back into his kingdom. That's important because salvation has purpose. Paul says, so that, uh, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is, is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is entrance into the kingdom of God. And it's expressed here as becoming heirs. An heir is someone who comes into possession of something. And we have come into the possession of right standing before God, of access to the kingdom. It's put this way in Mark chapter 1. Jesus came into Galilee, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is now available. We made ourselves enemies. We separated ourselves. We said we had wanted nothing to do with God's rule and reign, but that led to us being slaves to sin, foolish, hating one another. And he brings this recognition, he brings this salvation, and it makes a way for us to come back into the kingdom. We no longer have to be enemies of God, but instead we can live in harmony with him. We see that in the idea of eternal life, right? That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is more than just longevity of life. It is knowing God. In John 17, 3, we read, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that's not just simply knowing about God. It is a deep relational knowledge of God that shapes and changes who we are. And there's hope. Hope in the midst of that. Because we still live in a fallen and broken world. We still live in the midst of sin. And in the midst of difficulty and struggle, in the midst of a lost world, we have hope in our salvation. We have hope in our place in the kingdom of God because it is promised by Him. It rests solely on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. It cannot and will not ever be taken away. Because the creator of the universe is the guarantor of that promise. And through his Holy Spirit, he is present with us, regenerating, renewing, making us new, leading us into his kingdom, back into his purpose, into his work. Thus, as Paul says, this saying is profitable and excellent for good works. Because when the gospel is fully realized, when it is fully in place as the foundation, the only possible result is participation in the kingdom of God. It's good works. So that the first two verses at the beginning of Titus, um, Paul gives out some good works. This isn't an exhaustive list. It's just some ways that... Your life, how your life should look as a follower of Jesus, if you've been regenerated and renewed in the Holy Spirit, as you interact with people outside the church. 
And it can be a good mirror to hold up to ourselves, particularly that last bit, um, treating everyone with perfect courtesy, perfect humility, of looking at, do I treat people as better than myself? Am I growing in that? Is that more and more a quality in me? If you don't see that, then, then you should look and see, okay, am I building on the right foundation? Because this is what the gospel produces in people. This is the type of person this gospel message produces. It takes time. We come into salvation with habits and hang-ups and um, a, a whole past. But we're made new. And we are called to walk in that newness. And it produces the type of person listed in one, two. And I think recognizing how much importance Paul places on the salvation message helps explain why he is so harsh-seeming at the end in, in 9 through 11 towards uh, controversial people. I just want to reread that. He says, But avoid foolish controversies. This is verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. These are all uh, what we talked about a few weeks ago along the lines of false gospels. People have come into the church and were trying to make something else the main thing, whether that was your lineage or that you had to do certain acts or you had to be a certain way, whatever it was. They were changing the main thing. They are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, as for a person who tries to pull away the main thing, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That warped there is, is crooked. That person is crooked. And, and a divisive person, someone who tries to, to change what the main thing is, uh, creates crookedness. It, it just creates more crookedness. And so Paul is serious about it. And he, and he says, have nothing to do with this. Don't allow anyone. Insist. Confidently assert the gospel message as the main thing. And in all of this, in all, all of salvation, it's important to recognize that the end result of this has nothing to do with us in the end. Everything that Paul was saying, everything that, that he was talking about, it, it was God at work, God initiating it. And we shouldn't be surprised that at the other end, it is still God receiving everything. In Titus 2, verse 13, a few, just a few verses back, Paul writes, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you catch that? For his own possession. In salvation, God is creating a people for himself. You do not deserve God, but God deserves you. God deserves you because he paid the price for you. With his blood on the cross, he paid and bought you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The glory of God 
is what salvation produces. The glory of God is the fullness of His presence. It is the fullness of His goodness and loving kindness and grace. It is His reign and rule fully recognized, His kingdom fully established. It is the holiness of God. And our only response to salvation is to worship God, to make much of Him, to glorify His name. And that starts with two acts. Jesus lists them in Mark 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. We repent. We recognize I am lost. I am lost in my sin. I have no hope. I have no way to goodness. I'm a slave. I need a Savior. I turn from that way. I turn my back to it. And I believe. I align myself with God. I trust that that His work at the cross is enough that it gives me righteousness, that it puts me in right standing with God. And in that, the Holy Spirit works and He regenerates and He renews us and He brings us into the kingdom of God. This is the gospel. If you feel God pressing on you, if you recognize, I need that, I don't have that, I, I need to repent, I need to believe, it's not anything I can do for you. It's not anything anybody else can do. It's between you and the Lord. We're going to have some pastors up here during this song. We'd love to just pray with you and, and just give you an opportunity to voice that and, and talk through it and let the, the Spirit work within you. So if you guys want to stand to your feet, we'll, we'll close in, in this song. And, and if you feel the Lord pressing on you, come forward uh, and we would love to pray with you. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.